This episode is brought to you by Harry's.com, where you can get high-quality shaving products for about half the price of name-brand razors. Plus, get $5 off your order when you use the offer code BEST at checkout. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Clips Day from the PBS NewsHour, Radio Dispatch, The F Word with Laura Flanders, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, The Young Turks, and Counterspin. Testing for the Common Core Learning Standards in U.S. public schools began earlier this month. And just as a rebellion is brewing against the Common Core, there are now protests building against the national tests associated with them. Reports of students refusing to take the tests are coming in daily. And if those numbers keep building, it could endanger the goals of the standards themselves. Our special correspondent for education, John Marrow, has the story from New Jersey. We're live, we're live. Something big is happening in New Jersey, and it's being broadcast on YouTube. If you're, like, following us on Twitter or Instagram, make sure you use hashtags, hashtag OccupyNPS. In Newark, high school students occupied the superintendent's office for three days. One of their issues, the Common Core test. This is a pretty big deal. Uh, We're taking back our district. Politicians actually get very nervous when they see how many people are against one thing. They have money power, they have political power, but we have people power. It's happening in Montclair, where a protest group released this video. We're fighting back. I'm trying to push back against the test because I'm not just a number and I'm not a dollar sign. We are refusing the test. Refuse the test. And it's happening in the state capitol. In conclusion, the Park High Stakes Standardized Test will hurt our students teachers, and school. That is why I am refusing park test three. And I heard about what happened in New York, how like 60,000 people opted out, and I thought, wow, that's something we can't do about it. Park is one of two national tests of the Common Core state standards being given to about 15 million students, starting with third graders, in 28 states and Washington, D.C. this spring. The Common Core and the tests have their defenders. I think the Common Core state standards have upped the ante for everybody, that it is indeed more rigorous. So we needed a more rigorous assessment to address whether or not we were providing more rigorous instruction. But resistance to Common Core testing has been building in Florida, New York, Washington, Colorado, and elsewhere, including New Jersey, which has 590 school districts, 1.4 million students, and these days, anti-testing activity just about every night, often with strong language. I'm willing to go as, as far as I have to go in order to get this done. I would be arrested because of this. Protesters are from across the spectrum and from opposite sides of the political aisle. We don't want a national school board. We really don't. Carol Lee Adams is New Jersey president of the Eagle Forum, a conservative group. When it comes to perhaps social issues, we may not agree. But on this issue, we are shoulder to shoulder. Parents, conservatives, progressives, the teachers, we're all opposed to this because this is not about learning. This is not about education. And it's really exciting, John, because it's pure democracy. Julia Rubin is one of the founders of Save Our Schools New Jersey. Nobody really cares about the ideology of the group. It's about saving our schools. It's about protecting those children. Strange bedfellows is what they say. Yeah, it's so much fun. (laughs) One message, many voices. And that is the winning 
strategy. The message, tests take away from teaching and learning. They're impacting the kind of education kids are getting because they're eating up a lot of instruction time with test preparation and test drilling. If what you're measuring is English and math, then all these unimportant subjects like art and music and science and social studies, languages, you know, that gets put aside. So how was your day? Her 12-year-old daughter, Raisa, singles out the park test. Have you taken it? I have taken some sample tests. What did you think? It was very confusing. You're supposed to pick one right answer, which is hard for a lot of people. But the test must have a right answer. They did have a right answer, like they had a defined right answer. But they asked, which of these is not a main idea? But all of them kind of tied in to the idea. So everybody had a different answer because everybody interpreted text differently. There's never going to be one right way to solve a problem. So why should there be one right answer? Left and right object to the cost of the tests. They're saying New Jersey needs at least $575 million. I've heard of schools that are, have a shortfall of a half a million and three quarters of a million. So it's, it is something. This is costly. Students will spend up to 11 hours taking the test over nine days. Most will take them on computers, and everyone's expecting glitches. They don't know what the computer thing's going to be like. A lot of them, there's like all these different problems, like dragging and dropping, and a lot of students don't know how to do this kind of stuff on the computer. I think the only people who benefit from this would be those who are selling the tests, um, because the districts are not well off from the testing. Students are certainly not well off from the testing. It's a, it's a very big problem. In the As the protests have picked up steam, the education establishment has gone on the offensive. The old standardized test merely evaluated Tommy's ability to memorize basic facts. The new assessments measure deep understanding of the types of problems he will encounter in the real world. In New Jersey, most school superintendents are defending the test, including Jersey City Superintendent Marsha Lyles. We want to prepare our students to think about thinking. When they graduate from high school, it's not just a regurgitation or memorization of everything. She believes that higher standards will create a level playing field in mostly African-American and Latino districts. It will have the effect of making sure everybody has the same expectation. It's about shared expectations for everybody. And I think that for certain students and certain groups that they, we didn't have the same expectation. Seventy percent of her 28,000 students qualify for free or reduced price lunch. But as they say, the critics say all this test is going to do is remind them that they fail tests. So they'll be reminded that they're not successful when they leave high school and they can't get into a college of their choice or they have to take remedial coursework. We need to know now how they are performing. We need to know now so that we could provide the interventions necessary. And this will help us craft that. There's absolutely no data to show that imposing this quote-unquote accountability has improved educational outcomes. In fact, just the opposite. Inequalities increased. What the test primarily measure is the wealth of their families and the educational background of their families. Scores on the park won't determine whether students are promoted. However, teachers in several states, including New Jersey, will be judged on the results. It certainly impacts the teachers directly. And if teachers are miserable and demotivated, it certainly affects the students. What happens to students who opt out is up to individual school districts. Some are taking a hard line and making them sit at their desks during the testing hours. No books to read, nothing. If a kid is opting out, 
Will he or she just have to sit and stare? Oh or will no! There be- no, we, no, we will have we will have we will have alternatives for for students whose parents withdraw them from the test. But Superintendent Lyles is not telling parents about this policy. We are not promoting withdrawing from the test. We really want our students to participate in this assessment. The Park test will be administered in New Jersey throughout this month and again in May. Meanwhile, protesters seem to be growing more determined. I think this is exactly what democracy looks like. It's coming out in numbers, um, showing exactly what the people want. How strong is this grassroots test refusal movement? Politicians are paying attention. Twelve states have already dropped the Common Core tests, and others are considering it. I'm John Merrow, reporting from Newark, New Jersey, for the PBS NewsHour. I eat a big breakfast. I'm gonna pass that test. Make my mama proud and be a big success. Grab a pencil number two. I'll show you what I'm gonna do. Get some rest. Take the test. Never guess. And do my best. to the top. Check your stopwatch. Grace so hot. Mix a robot with a pop lock. Study skills rock. Everything I do is top notch. Watch some words flock. Do my pen and paper. Hits the knowledge rock. Everybody, I mean, so it's third grade and up. Third grade has to take these tests. And third grade has never taken them before, but they've been hyped up in their minds all year, right? Oh, yeah. So I was kind of asking them how they were feeling yesterday. I was like, first, like, check in, like... It's your first day back from spring break, which mm-hmm. is obviously everybody's going to be adjusting from being off of school for a week. Which and, is, like, so huge. Right. A week is a lot. Like, I felt out of it yesterday, yeah. right? Like, of course, the eight-year-olds felt out of it. And then, also, tomorrow, <laughs> these extremely high-stakes tests start. And so, you know, some of the kids were like, I feel happy because I went to a movie and bowling with my family, but I feel nervous because I have to take this test tomorrow. And it's just like, God, give the kids one day to feel happy about their spring break before they have to feel nervous about this test tomorrow. The series of tests, it's a whole week. It's Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And then... I guess they get Friday, not off, but off of the test, and then next the next week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, math. And and a thing that I learned recently about, you know, I talk, I've talked a lot about English language learners having to take these tests, right? So, like, if it's your first year in the school system mm-hmm. um, and you're an English language learner, as I understand it, you are exempt from the from the English language arts tests test. You don't have to like okay. if you. So if you got here last week from uh, Dominican Republic, you do not have, or or even in September, as I understand it, you don't have to take the English language arts tests. But if you got here last week from Dominican Republic, you do have to take the math test next week. Oh really? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Never mind that. Half of the math test is story problems written in English. <laughs> that is so genius. What a fantastic yep. way to set people up for failure. Right? Yeah, especially the school that, you know, has a large immigrant population. <laughs> uh, Don't worry, kids. The only reading you'll have to do is complex word math problems. Right. Math prob- Right. Story problems are hard for native English speakers because you have to figure out what the fucking math problem is hidden in this word problem. Right. That's the whole point of the story of the word problem. It is int- it is linked to your understanding of of the words in front of you of English uh if it is written in English and 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 t- tough luck if you just got here. <laughs> <laughs> 
or if you got here in September. I, I mean, you know, and and it's so it's it's ridiculous. I also saw as part of a. Um, a response to that Success Academy New York Times story. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw, I went on Success Academy's Facebook page to see how they were spinning it. Uh-huh. And there was a letter that they uh, had posted from a parent um, who was a parent of a kindergartner in Bensonhurst who's a Russian, who's a Russian speaker at home. And she's like, my kindergartner, like, yes, there are no additional English language learning programs uh, at Success Academy, but my kindergartner is adapting really well. And I wanted to be like, what's well, because your kindergarten is a kindergartner. Yeah. Like, kindergartners are really fucking good at learning languages. Like, put them in a class where they don't speak the language and, like, in a few weeks, they'll be good you know yeah. like i've seen that happen and so that's a tangent but ba- but but the point is kids are taking two weeks of tests basically all day long basically the entire week many of them my kids are taking tests in language that is not their first language Many of my, especially the, the middle school kids, the older kids, I mean, they're, you know, they're kids. They're still better at learning languages than adults are. But it's my point with the Success Academy story is it's a lot harder to learn English in three months when you're nine than it is when you're five mm-hmm. or when you're 12 than it is when you're nine, right? Like, it's, it's just harder. It takes more time. And a lot of my kids are bilingual and a lot of them are comfortable in English, but a lot of them are still learning English. And so... You know, English language arts tests measure your comfort with English in reading and writing in English. And, and I was trying to tell the kids yesterday, I was like, you guys are, you're all smart. You should all b- believe in yourselves. Like, don't feel nervous. Just do the best you can. You know, but then like one of them was like, Miss Molly, what happens if you fail the test? And uh, I don't know yeah. exactly what happens. Yeah. And I don't know how, like, I just don't. I was like, that's a question for your mom or your teacher. But I was like, don't worry about that right now. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, those tests are weighted for whether you go on to the next grade. Those tests are weighted, like, they're, you know, it's, that is, that's so much pressure. Whether you go on to the next grade is linked to how well you do on this test tomorrow, the day after spring break. That, answering that question, I think, would be as hard as if a kid came up to you and was like, Miss Miley, is it true that everybody dies someday? Right, right, right. Miss Miley, what is death? You're not going to like the answer. <laughs> right, right, and and again because it's changed, they have less weight this year in terms of, as I understand it, in terms of going on to the next grade. But it's not it's not zero weight, and it's yeah. just, you know it's just, what, like right. I'm like it's too much. What what happens if you fill the test? Whatever happens is bullshit, children. That's, I'm sorry, uh, you know. And so I was like I was like you know I don't know the details of how all everything works, but that's a question for your teacher, a question for your mom. The kids were like our teacher said that if we're feeling nervous, we can like write to have an extra piece of paper and write down all the words that we're feeling to help us feel better. One of them was like, they said that we can even write swear words. <laughs> like, I mean, I just, wow. it's like, we are telling kids, like, if you're so scared that you feel like swearing, like here is a coping mechanism for when you go through this process that we're making you go through. It's, it's, I mean, I've talked to teachers who, who have said like I feel like I'm torturing the kids. Yeah. The kids are screaming, they're they're crying, they're wetting their pants in in the Success Academy story, you know, they're breaking down in frustration and the teachers, you know, they they, they have no choice in the matter. Not only do they have no choice, their livelihoods depend on it. Yeah. I mean, it's what just a, a terrible, complete nightmare. What a terrible system. It's a complete nightmare. So, yeah, so my, and I told the kid yesterday, I was like, my goal today is to not stress you guys out. 
but then the class where I can't turn around without everybody, you know, fighting, and I got mad. But, you know, today again with the, with the big kids, I'm going to be like, my goal is to not stress you guys out. Here's some candy. <laughs> you need to lay down. But because they're young, like, like with, if it was an adult and you were overworked, I'd just mm-hmm. be like, just sit in the dark for a few minutes. Yeah, put a, put a cold <laughs> rag on your head. Yeah. <laughs> but with kids, like, because they work it out through, like, they still have all this energy. Yeah. I don't know how to, I'm like, we're still in a classroom. Like, I don't know what to do to have them feel better. Yeah, it's not like you're on some sort of ropes course and you can be like, hey, just just get out a bunch of energy on this, you know, put a harness on you and we'll have you climb on a little tiny climbing wall. Right, run around and scream at the park for five hours. Uh, All right, children, you're in the same classroom you were taking the test in all day. Now relax. (laughs) I said relax. (laughs) Don't think about tomorrow. (laughs) You've got a few hours before you need to go home and sleep and then wake up and do it all over again. Oh, God. I mean, adults would break down under that kind of pressure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, right. The adult, I mean, the teachers, I'm sure, are, I mean, teachers, I'm sure, I, I know, are have a hard week ahead of them. But Matt, take take a take on any average adult in a in a regular like office job, ad job, whatever job you do, uh, and imagine two straight weeks of evaluation. Yeah, yeah, high stakes evaluation. Like you could lose your job evaluation. Yeah, you could lose your job. You could uh, not get a promotion. You could not get a raise. And you you could could lose your boss's job. So your boss is putting all this pressure on you even if they don't want to. Even if your boss loves you (laughs) and wants you to succeed, your boss is freaking out. Yeah. You know, your parents are freaking out. Like, it's, it's like, it's like the students are uh, trying to uh, advance to the next level in some sort of special operations forces. (laughs) Uh, you know, elite military unit where they're like, we are going to put you through hell. <laughs> when you come out on the other end, you will be a weapon. <laughs> God, it's so the, the the one bit of good news in all of this is that there, this year more than ever, there are a tremendous amount of opt opt outs. Parents choosing to oh yeah opt their kids out of the tests, uh, which was I mean even last year was like a novel idea. Like yep. what happens? It's a required test. What do you mean opt out? Um, so even from last year to this year, it it went from a like. That would be a completely inconceivable direct action to take. What would it, what would it mean? To this year, lots and lots of opt outs. I don't have the exact percentages. So that's, I mean, which means that there is growing resistance to this. I mean, obviously the teachers uh, are against it. A lot of parents are against it. But, you know, again, who has the resources to opt out? The people who, if your kid gets punished somehow, held back somehow, whatever, whatever, the, the people who know, like, whatever happens to my kid in the school, in the school system, in the public school system, I will be able to figure out something else mm-hmm. to, that, that, so that the kid will be okay, right? Yeah. And if, if your public neighborhood school is what you've got and you, you don't have any backup plan for that, then opting out your kid is a much scarier prospect. It's also just, I mean, it's so bananas that parents have to stage organized resistance right against the against the school system yeah or against an ideology that has taken root so deeply right. that students are being terrorized by right. it and that's as you say it's not the schools i mean it is the school system because that's the 
that's the entity kind of mechanism right but it's not coming from educators right these tests are not coming from educators they're coming from politicians yeah they come from cuomo they come from state i mean they come from state and national lawmakers saying this is how we measure the standards they're not coming from schools yeah and and they've been persuaded by outside consultants the companies who make the tests companies who make the tests who are by and large not former classroom teachers absolutely not yeah, who just but who do have a lot of money to make by having these tests be administered, and and we we should, another day I haven't read too, enough about it, but we haven't even talked about the whole felony te- the the uh, Atlanta felony oh, scandal yeah. uh, with with teachers. Um, the the very short of it is that teachers uh, were convicted of of fraudulently changing their students' test scores and and were convicted and are serving jail time and are felons. And meanwhile, that is what Michelle Rhee oversaw in D.C. She was the kingpin. If that's a felony, then she's the kingpin the fucking felon because she ran it in D.C., she oversaw it, and meanwhile, she's the one, you know, she's outside of every public school in, in a poor neighborhood just telling parents to change it into a charter school. She's a very powerful person. I think that in every media appearance, the Chiron, where it says her name underneath, it should say Kingpin Felon. <laughs> I mean, it's, it sounds like a, like a pretty awesome hardcore rapper name. <laughs> Michelle Rhee at Kingpin Felon. Uh, so that's, and that, but that's, and I do want to talk about that in more depth because that, like, that is what hap- what, what do you, what do you get when you force teachers to either have their kids demonstrate this certain metric of progress, which the kids either can or can't do. You can't make them. I, like, you, or you can, you can make them by cheating. Yeah. And you can, the only way you can survive, you can protect your job is by cheating. So it creates all of these, this is what, ha- this is, we've seen this happen before, like in police departments. This, this is what happens when you have these extremely high stakes tests. And so, yeah, so then you end up with a group of teachers who are felons in prison because their because their jobs depended on the kids doing well on these tests. I mean, it's just it's just and I'm not, obviously not saying that teachers should cheat. Of course they shouldn't. But I'm saying, like, look at the conditions you are creating. Look at what's happening. Yeah, it's a nightmare. Yeah. Well, I mean, people cheat all the time and they don't go to jail. Like, right. I mean, uh, the, the jobs <laughs> of so many people are to find ways of either skirting the law or breaking the law in a very complicated way and not going to jail for it and and doing that for clients and making sure that the clients don't go to jail for it i mean this is this is what international banks do right that's like one of the services they offer it's like the american dream you know yeah it's just absurd to think that that we live in a country where it's like well if you if you cheat you're going to jail right right Based on that one Atlanta thing, are there now more teachers in jail than there are bankers in jail right. for the from since, the last since year? 2008. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Yeah, jail the teachers. Right. <laughs> Abolish the jails. <laughs> Abolish the schools. <laughs> jail the teachers who brought on the financial collapse. Did they do that? <laughs> it's, I can't keep anything straight anymore. This show is sponsored by Harry's.com, makers of fine razors and other shaving supplies. But if you have freed yourself from the shackles of societal conventions and have no need for grooming devices, then I say more power to you. 
for the rest of us who either prefer or have succumbed to the demand that we shave one, several, or all parts of our body, then at least I have some advice about how to go about it. First of all, Harry's has the best razors I have ever used. That is not an exaggeration. When the company started selling them, they liked them so much that they decided to buy the German factory that produced them. But not only are the blades great, they cost about half as much as the big name brands who thought they had a lock on the market. They originally gave me some samples to try out, but now I am totally hooked. Blades, shaving gel, aftershave, the whole shebang. And one of the best parts is that you just order everything online and have it shipped to you for free. So go to harrys.com and get a starter kit of your own to start getting a better shave while saving money. And to help you with your first order, use the offer code BEST to save $5 off your purchase. That's harrys, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com and enter the coupon code BEST at checkout for $5 off the starter set and start shaving smarter today. Hi, I'm Laura Flanders of Grit TV. Governor Scott Walker stirred up the Hornets this winter when he not only proposed cutting $300 million from the University of Wisconsin's budget, but simultaneously tried to sneak in a change to the vaunted mission of that institution, from one talking about seeking truth and serving society to one that talked about meeting the workforce's needs. Walker's effort to edit UW's progressive-era principles angered educators and students alike and led party-predictable pundits to cry out about about the presumed presidential contender's Tea Party plans for education. What's been missed in all this is while Walker may indeed be their pal, putting schools to work for business is hardly a Tea Party innovation. Businesses have always looked to classrooms to serve up pliant workers. Wisconsin's idea was notable precisely because in an age of industrialization, the pressure was on for schools to produce workers fit for factories. Craftsmen had a nasty habit of walking off the production line at the degradation of their labor by automation. The 1917 Smith-Hughes Act funded two tracks of manual ed, the vocational and the general, to ease blue and white-collar workers more smoothly into their places. Vocational ed endured until U.S. manufacturers fancied shedding some of their U.S. workers, at which time, in the 1980s and 90s, government started talking about college degrees for all, no matter how unpredictable or how costly. Today's high-stakes economy favors high-stakes testing. All those tests are a nifty profit center themselves, of course, which is why so many profit-minded folks are lobbying mightily for them, but polarizing testing also serves the needs of a polarized economy. Multiple, which actually means minimal choice testing, doesn't produce the kind of creative thinking we actually need to solve today's problems, which is why the rich perhaps don't force their kids to do it, but tests reinforce the myth of meritocracy, and with that, the idea that those at the top are deserving. When we interviewed people for Own the Change about starting work around co-ops, the single biggest challenge they named was a lack of training and cooperation. Walker blamed his editing plan on an underling's error and backed away, but education for the workforce isn't going anywhere. It's enshrined in today's Common Core curriculum. And the question for those who seek real reform now is if a polarizing education meets the needs of a polarizing economy, what sort of education befits an economy that puts people first and the needs of profit behind community and the planet? The current system is designed for profit, not human needs. People must rise up and revolt. The human need 
over profit. There's something wrong when they say separation of church and state. This swear you in on the Bible to be president or take the stand. And the demand for free health care and education. And jobs for all the paper bills could be met with the creation of tax and the super rich. Taking some millions from the place, placing the military budget with big cuts would change the nation. They got health care in Europe and Canada. Presently, they don't have as many in jail and they don't have the death penalty. It's currently testing season all over the country. And with that comes the usual flood of anxiety and school produced videos designed to get kids in the mood. Get your number two pencils out. Your number two pencils out. Get your number two pencils out. What the test say? Get your number two pencils out. Get your number two pencils out. Look, standardized tests look like amazing fun. I wish I could take one right now. Bring me a pencil. A number two, please. But it gets better because one elementary school in Texas even held a test themed pep rally featuring a monkey mascot. <laughs> Look, let's all agree there is no scenario in which the words, here comes the monkey, can fail to pump you up. Just imagine right now I was your surgeon and I said to you, I'm about to put you under. There's about a 20% chance of survival. And I have four important words for you. Here comes the monkey. You're going to be looking forward to that operation. It's going to be a fun time. You see? You love it. The point is, the point is, you, you proved my point. The point is, those, those videos and monkey mascots would have you think that testing is amazing, which is why this spate of recent news stories has been so surprising. In the lower Hudson Valley, many districts reported that more than 25% of their students opted out. More than 1,700 elementary, middle, and high school students opted out of taking the park test. There was five kids that I was with. That took the test? Yeah. Like almost the entire auditorium was filled with kids that didn't take it. Not a single junior showed up to take the Common Core Smarter Balance test this week. Wow. The entire class boycotted the test. The only other thing an entire class of juniors has ever managed to agree on is that the scarlet letter could be told much simpler with emojis. Yeah, we get it. We get it. Red lady, finger finger, devil, baby. We've all read the book. It's a good story. But look, is it any wonder that American students are sick of tests? Between benchmarks, diagnostics, pre and mock tests, they take a lot of them. Students are taking between 10 and 20 standardized tests, depending on the grade, a total average of 113 different ones by graduation. 113 is a lot of tests. It's approaching the amount that you'd ask your doctor for the morning after you woke up from a one-night stand with Colin Farrell. <laughs> just, just give me all of them twice. And, and this amount of testing can take a toll. Teachers have reported kids throwing up, kids crying, especially the younger ones. And it's the pressure. That's true. In, in fact, this happens so much that official instructions for test administrators specify what to do if a student vomits on his or her test booklet. And something is wrong with our system when we just assume a certain number of kids will vomit. Tests are supposed to be assessments of skills, not a rap battle on Eight Mile Road. Oh, Eminem, why did your mom make you spaghetti? She knew tonight was rap battle night. 
How did we get here? Well, well, the explosion of testing can be traced back to the 90s, when you probably remember stories like these about the state of public education. When 40 nations recently took the International Math and Science Test, American students scored near the bottom. And that must have hurt, especially because you knew the French children weren't even trying. Uh, go on, uh, play with your silly numbers. <laughs> they tell you nothing of the true nature of the soul. <laughs> I weep for you. In response to statistics like that, in response to those kinds of statistics, President George W. Bush, on just his third day in office, announced his No Child Left Behind program. It passed Congress with bipartisan support because of course it did. Voting against No Child Left Behind is like voting against No Puppy Left Unsnuggled. What, what monster would do that? His name is Patches and he needs love! The program was designed to be data-driven and involved testing children every single year in order to identify and fix failing schools. And the accountability system must have a consequence, otherwise it's not much of an accountability system. It's hard to argue with any of that. Unfortunately, accountability is one of those concepts that everybody's in favour of, but nobody knows how to make work, like synergy or maxi dresses. No matter who wears them, they look like a poncho f***ed a waterfall. You look like the ghost of Gwyneth Paltrow future. I only haunt brunch. Goo. No Child Left Behind increased the number of federally mandated tests from 6 to 17. And the fixation on testing was something which our current president seemed to be against as he ran for office. Don't tell us that the only way to teach a child is to spend too much of a year preparing him to fill out a few bubbles in a standardized test. We know that's not true. Wow, that man knew how to pander to teachers. And you, you know what else? There should be pool tables in the teacher's lounge. And every year you should be able to slap one parent. Vote for me, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. Vote, vote for me. But, but once this president took office, he didn't get rid of tests. Instead, he added his own education initiatives like Race to the Top, which encouraged states to adopt the Common Core, which featured a logo of snails 69ing. <laughs> and, and, and again, the intentions here were good, because we do have underperforming schools, and there are major economic and racial disparities in the quality of education children receive. And anything that can help us narrow those gaps is obviously a good thing. The problem has been the implementation. For instance, many states now tie teacher pay to performance using one particular approach. It's called value-added analysis, rating teachers based on student test scores. For instance, if a student who ranked in the 60th percentile test higher at the end of the year, the teacher gets a better rating. If the student falls, the teacher's rating falls. Okay, well, that explains why many teachers' classroom decorations that used to read, believe in yourself, now say, don't f*** me on this. <laughs> don't f*** me. And... And while, while the idea of tying teacher pay to student improvement sounds great in theory, here's how it can work in practice. I have four students whose predicted scores were literally impossible. One of my sixth grade students had a predicted score of 286.34. However, the highest a sixth grade student can earn is 283. The student did earn a 283, incidentally. Despite the fact she earned a perfect score, she counted negatively towards my evaluation because she was three points below her predicted score. That is ridiculous. 
The only way she could have hit her predicted score was if she answered everything right, wrote a few extra questions of her own, got those right, and then stapled them to the test. <laughs> that teacher lives in Florida, which uses this formula to assess teachers. A formula which looks like the kind of thing that aliens carve into an anti-Semite's cornfield. <laughs> and, and many of these formulas on which teachers' careers depend were partly inspired by research, and this is true, that modelled the reproductive trends of livestock. Basically, we judge the nuance of what happens in the complicated world of a child's mind the same way that we judge this. Look, I don't know what we did wrong, but your child is going to either pass algebra or birth a healthy calf. I don't know. <laughs> Flip a coin. With the stakes this high, the tests had better be good, but there is ample reason to suspect that that is not the case. Just look at the Florida Comprehensive At Assessment Test, or FCAT. Uh, a Florida school board member was concerned and a little suspicious when he learned that only 39% of his state's 10th graders had performed at or above grade level in reading. So he had an idea. I asked the district at that point to give me the closest thing they could legally to the FCAT reading and math test and I took it. That test labeled me as a poor reader. And I have a couple of master's degrees, and I've been re-elected four times, and I teach 39 graduate courses at six universities in this country. Okay, 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 we get it. The test sucks. Anything else you want to brag about there? Oh. I also know how to play Mary Had a Little Lamb on the recorder, and guess who can do 16 non-consecutive push-ups? This fucking guy. But look, he, he does have a point. He does have a point. If a test fails to reflect ability, there are human consequences. Because one shy Florida 8th grader who had a near-perfect score in her advanced language arts class was asked to leave it last year due to her inexplicably low scores on the FCAT. And last fall, she told a school board meeting exactly how that felt. Every year I do good in school, but I get low tests. But I get low test scores on the FCAP, and it feels like a punch in the stomach. This is unfair, and I don't want to lose my opportunity to take my advanced classes or get um, better education because of this one test. That is just awful. I, I take back everything I said about wanting to take a standardized test. In fact, you know what? Bring out the monkey! Bring out the monkey! No, no, no! No, no! No, no! Turn off his music! Turn off it! Do not applaud it! What the f is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? You made that little girl cry! Think about what you've done! Go! No, no, no! Don't you die! Don't you dance it off! You go and think about what you've done! Aww. Shame on you! Shame on you! Look, at this point, you have to ask yourself, if standardized tests are bad for teachers and bad for kids, who exactly are they good for? Well, it turns out they're operated by companies like all these, and let's just focus on the largest one, Pearson. As of 2012, they had nearly 40% of the testing market, almost triple their nearest competitor. And if you've never heard of them, then congratulations. But just mention their name to any parent or teacher in a state they operate in, and you see what happens. Because Pearson are the educational equivalent of Time Warner Cable. <laughs> Either you've never had an interaction with them and don't care, or they have ruined your fucking life. Pearson have a shocking amount of influence over America's schools. So much so that at this point, a hypothetical girl could take Pearson tests 
from kindergarten through at least eighth grade, uh, by tests, by the way, that she studied for using Pearson curriculum and textbooks taught to her by teachers who were certified by their own Pearson test. If at some point she was tested for a learning disability, like ADHD, that's also a Pearson test. And if she eventually got sick of Pearson and dropped out, well, she'd have to take the GED, which is now, guess what, also a Pearson test. In fact, the only test they have no hand in is the HPV test she might take in college, <laughs> and I can only assume that they'll get on that as soon as they see this fucking show. <laughs> Pearson has enjoyed spectacular growth and profits, and yet, their track record is littered with complaints concerning technical glitches, slow grading, and even the contents of their tests. Take, take what happened in New York just a few years ago. Almost 30 different test questions have now been declared invalid because they're confusing or have outright errors. They'd already pulled six questions from an English exam related to a bizarre passage about a talking pineapple. A talking pineapple? Well, at the risk of sounding like a DreamWorks executive talking to a CGI animator, tell me more about this talking pineapple. Students had to answer questions about the story, which they say goes like this. A pineapple challenges a hare to a race. Other animals figure the fruit has a trick up its sleeve, but the hare wins and the animals eat the pineapple. It ends with the moral, pineapples don't have sleeves. I was really confused because uh, I expected a lot more from them. That article about the pineapple and the hare was stupid and absurd. Yeah, she's not wrong about that because we looked up that test section and we couldn't work out all the answers. That pineapple item doesn't remotely work as a test question. It barely works as a Doors lyric. But it's, it's not just Pearson's questions that are a problem. It's how they check the answers. The company posted this ad to Craigslist. It's to find people to grade the exams. Craigslist. They look for scorers on Craigslist. Pearson chooses test graders the same way that you'd look for a mattress full of bed bugs or a no-strings-attached hand job. <laughs> and to be clear here, just to be clear, this is, not, this is not just a Pearson problem. Across the whole testing industry, you can find former graders who will tell you horror stories. We looked at an essay every two minutes, a short answer every five seconds, every ten seconds. We don't understand your kids. We don't understand anyone's kids. That is not an acceptable answer from a person who may be responsible for the future of your child. It's barely acceptable from the manufacturers of American Girl dolls. Oh, we make dolls for a hundred bucks that kids can't play with in case they get them dirty. We don't understand your kids. We don't understand anyone's kids. And as, as another scorer points out, sometimes grades are given out not based on merit, but on quota. I was told when I was beginning a project that last year, you know, there were a certain amount of twos, a certain amount of threes, a certain amount of fours. We expect that to be similar this year. If that's not similar, they will tell you, we're scoring too many threes, we're scoring too many fours. And they'll say, you have to learn to see more papers as a three. You have to learn to see more papers as a four. But that makes no sense if the content of what you're looking at has not changed. That's like telling a baseball umpire, hey, we've got a problem with batting averages. You need to see more home runs as strikeouts and more strikeouts as doubles. Do it now. <laughs> and I would love to show you more questions from these tests, but unfortunately, that's not only difficult, it's often illegal. Because both states and companies have fought to keep test questions secret by having teachers and students sign statements like, I will not use or discuss the content of secure test materials. And while they'll say that this is to protect against cheating, it does seem odd that even if you see something wrong on a test, you can't tell anyone. 
Standardised tests basically enforce the rule that all subway riders instinctively obey. If you see something, keep it the f*** to yourself. We've all seen someone vomit in a purse before. Leave it. Focus ahead and leave it. Bury it. Look, look, we've had more than a decade of standardised testing now. And maybe it's time to put the test to the test. The original goal was to narrow the achievement gap and boost our scores relative to the rest of the world. Well, a 2013 study found no support for the idea that No Child Left Behind narrowed the achievement gap, and our scores on the international tests have not only failed to rise, they're slightly down. And I do not want to hear what that French kid thinks of those results. <laughs> oh, all this time and all this money, and your race to the top has been, how you say, a meandering jog on a treadmill. <laughs> For a little of what both presidents asked for when selling their reforms. Higher standards are the right goal. Accountability is the right goal. And the accountability system must have a consequence. Otherwise, it's not much of an accountability system. Right, so let's look at that. Because as far as I can see, this is a system which has enriched multiple companies and that pays and fires teachers with a cattle birthing formula, confuses children with talking pineapples, and has the same kind of rules regarding transparency that Brad Pitt had for Fight Club. <laughs> so, so for Pearson, the other companies, and all the lawmakers who have supported this system, the true test is going to be either convincing everyone it works or accepting it doesn't work and fixing it. Because, at the risk of sounding like a standardised test scorer, your numbers are not good. And it, if it seems unfair to have your fates riding on a complicated metric that fails to take institutional factors into account and might not even tell the whole story, well, you're not wrong about that, but you do not get to complain about it. And if all this pressure to increase your numbers is making you feel nauseous, like you might vomit at any second, then don't worry. I've got four words for you that'll make you feel better. Here comes the monkey! Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, rollback, standardized testing, and support opt-out. 
standardized tests are finally getting a hard look in our education policy and legislatures. This is due in no small part to the parents, students, and teachers around the country staging coordinated protests to opt out of the tedious fill-in-the-bubble marathons that school kids are routinely put through. Some teachers are on board not just because they care about the quality of the instruction they're able to deliver, but because test scores are heavily weighted in their evaluations without concern for mitigating factors. We not only risk students falling behind, but the loss of good teachers who become frustrated or are let go because of unfair criteria. The National Center for Fair and Open Testing, or FAIR Test for short, is a group we've highlighted before. Currently, in addition to providing links to opt-out contacts and resources around the country and a comprehensive list of colleges that are quote-unquote test optional, they're backing Senator John Tester's legislation to reform the biggest cause of standardized testing, No Child Left Behind. Senator Tester, a former teacher, has introduced the Student Testing Improvement and Accountability Act. He explains why reforming evaluations of both teachers and students is important. Quote, students shouldn't be spending most of their time in school filling out bubbles. That's not the kind of education that fosters critical thinking or creativity. Students shouldn't be learning for the test. They should be learning for life, unquote. Visit fairtest.org and click on the public school news tab for their campaign called Write Congress to Demand Less Testing and Ends to High Stakes, supporting Senator Tester's bill, which would reduce federally mandated standardized testing to once in each elementary, middle, and high school. Gen Xers managed to survive their educational lives with such bare-bones testing. Certainly, the current generation of kids could as well. A floor debate on the bill is expected any time, and currently there are no co-sponsors. You can urge your senators to sign on and then vote yes by using contactingthecongress.org. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If prioritizing education over testing matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about Senator Tester's bill and the opt-out movement via social media so that others in your network can show their support too. On April 1st, 11 teachers from the Atlanta area were convicted of racketeering charges for their part in a huge cheating scandal. Now, these teachers either fed students test information for standardized testing, as in answers, or they changed the answers so the students would get higher grades or higher scores. So as a result, uh, they faced racketeering charges, which are usually reserved for organized crime, And amazingly, 11 of the teachers were convicted. Now, the reason why this story is such a huge scandal is because they are facing up to 20 years behind bars for what they did, longer than some rapists get for their crime. So, of course, people are outraged by this. And the community in Atlanta is actually coming together to rally in support 
of these women who have been convicted. Now, according to a recent report by the LA Times, several hundred people in Atlanta, including one uh, uh, one of the 11 educators convicted of cheating, packed uh, Atlanta's first Iconium Baptist Church for a prayer vigil and town hall meeting in support of the convicted educators. Some wore suits and clutched Bibles. Other wore others wore overalls and handed out petitions. Um, there was also a number of religious leaders from the community there who were very outspoken against what happened. Um, and in fact, Reverend Frank Brown said the following: "We are dismayed and disappointed at the actions of Judge Baxter to handcuff our educators and to haul them off to jail as if they're hardened criminals." And what exactly did the judge have to say about these women? Well, he's quoted as saying, "They are now convicted felons, as far as I'm concerned." I don't like to send anyone to jail, but they have made their bed and they're going to lie in it. I don't believe him even for one second that he doesn't like to send people to jail. I think he likes sending people to jail as long as they're the right kind of people. Uh, if that was, you can hate me for saying it, you say it's an assumption, uh, but if it was white teachers from Jerry Baxter's neck of the woods, uh, then he would hate sending them to jail. And, and he'd be, well, it's, am I really going to send Johnny's teacher to jail for 20 years? No, I mean, come on. I know the system incentivizes them uh, to ramp up the test scores because their job's dependent on it, their salary's dependent on it. Golly gee, they did the wrong thing here. They should be fired, but they're not going to. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, 11 African Americans from the middle of Atlanta. Off they go, hardened criminals, Fel- felons. I hate sending him to jail, but what am I going to do? Felons. I don't know the race of this judge, so I feel uncomfortable saying that it's a white judge discriminating. Even if it's a look. But but there is a difference in socioeconomic status here, okay? You're dealing with a judge from a different part of the neck of the woods, as as you refer to. And so it's a common thing that we see in our justice system. There's a two-tier justice system where the wealthy get away with murder in some cases, right, because of things like affluenza, if you can remember that story. And then you have teachers who are going to serve 20 years in prison because they could have lost their jobs if standardized test scores weren't high enough, so they felt pressure to change the test scores. I mean, look, what they did was wrong. They should have been fired. But again, the system is set up against them. If that's the way you evaluate teachers, how do you think they feel, especially when you're taking their funding away from them, especially when they're dealing with disadvantaged youth that are living in poor areas? It's a disaster for them. I don't know why teachers would want to be teachers in America today. Again, it's all set up against them. Now, look... They should be fired. You you can't cheat on the test, obviously. It's obvious, right? Uh, But now, look at the message you're sending to teachers. If you live in a rich neighborhood where everybody has a ton of opportunities and they're all going to do relatively well on the test, well, then you're fine. Go ahead and be a teacher there. You live in a poor neighborhood where there's a ton of uh, obstacles in the way. It doesn't mean you can't get past those obstacles if you're a student, but there are those obstacles that makes it harder, and you know that the test scores are going to be lower. You know you're going to have more pressure on you. And if you do something wrong, we could put you in prison for decades. Yeah. So now who's going to be a teacher then? Now here In those neighborhoods. I, I, I would have no interest in being a teacher. I don't care what neighborhood it is, because right now public education is under attack 
all the blame is being placed on teachers, and it's all about evaluating the teachers because they're protected by these unions and they're just lazy and they're not doing their jobs. So in this case,、uh, the judge could be lenient,、um, but based on his statements in the past, it doesn't seem like he will be. So as I mentioned,、uh, all face a minimum of five years and a maximum of twenty years in prison for the racketeering charges. However, the judge has the discretion to sentence them to probation or suspend the sentences altogether, which is why、uh, this. Huge group of people got together in Atlanta and they protested and, and demanded that the judge be lenient in this case. Now, another thing I want to raise awareness about is a GoFundMe account or page that hasn't gotten any attention. The proceeds of this page will go toward the legal defense of these teachers. So, if you feel as passionately about this as I do, please, any little bit of money helps. There it is, funding fairness for Atlanta Public School 12. So far, they've only raised a little over five thousand dollars, and their goal is to raise at least a million dollars. The defense attorneys are planning to appeal the ruling. So, again, every little bit helps. And we also、uh, did talk to some of the attorneys in this case to see what they had to say about the page. And、um, Gerald A. Griggs says that the purpose of the page is to get help to fund their appeal. And also, this is really interesting. Angela Johnson is another、uh, attorney who's representing Pamela Cleveland in this case. And here's what she had to say: My client Pam Cleveland is a first-grade teacher, and first-grade teachers did not count for bonuses. Remember, in the racketeering charges, the prosecutor said, "Look, they changed the scores because they were trying to get bonuses." That's the thing. It's, that's the organized crime we're dealing with. She did not get any bonuses. Most of them did not receive any bonus money. Only two or three out of the twelve teachers received bonus money that amounted to less than two thousand dollars. That's that's what they're going to serve possibly twenty years behind bars for. None of the Wall Street executives went to jail, and they took home hundreds of millions of dollars for a two thousand dollar bonus on questionable. Total. Yeah, total, unquestionable grounds as to whether some of them even got the money or didn't get the money. They face a minimum of five years, a maximum of twenty. You tell me there's justice in this country. You tell me that it's the same justice system that applies to those bankers as applies to these people in Atlanta. You must be smoking something if you think that's the same justice system. Headlines were made when an Atlanta jury, using a law generally associated with mafioso, convicted 11 teachers of racketeering in a standardized test cheating scandal. We heard a good deal about how such cheating really hurts the most vulnerable students the most, and how maybe this will serve as a lesson so it won't happen again. What there's been less of is serious exploration of why, despite Judge Jerry Baxter's claim that the scandal is like the sickest thing that's ever happened in this town, such cheating is actually widespread, 
and not due to some mysterious uptick in duplicity on the part of the country's educators. In a widely circulated blog post, author and researcher Richard Rothstein, now at the Economic Policy Institute, introduced some ideas largely missing from the broader conversation. Cheating, like that in Atlanta and elsewhere, he noted, is to be expected in any institution, quote, where top policymakers try to manage their institutions with simple quantitative measures that distort the institution's goals. This corruption is especially inevitable when out-of-touch policymakers set impossible-to-achieve goals and expect that success will nonetheless follow if only underlings are held accountable for measurable results, close quote. Rothstein notes that there's little doubt that the inflation of scores resulted in part from Atlanta's late superintendent Beverly Hall's creation of a culture of fear, intimidation, and retaliation. But, he asks, what of the idea that Hall was herself reacting to a culture of fear, intimidation, and retaliation that her board, state education officials, and the Bush and Obama administrations had created? with no child left behinds, incoherent demands that schools meet goals that are both challenging and at the same time achievable by all students. It would be reasonable to hold educators accountable for student test results if the tests were accurate reflections of teacher performance, but a growing body of evidence finds that they are not. In such a scenario, cheating is virtually inevitable. And the alternative, closing schools, firing teachers, pushing low-performing students to drop out, is not necessarily to be preferred. The Atlanta case has so far served as an opportunity for people to decry corruption. That's the easy part. Rothstein encourages us to have the harder conversation about whether sending teachers to jail without examining the institutional constraints that made their corruption predictable is really the proper way to show that we genuinely care about the students they serve. Beyond 
change, and that's how we see people with higher levels of testosterone, lower levels of testosterone, women with beards, women who think that they're men, probably has something to do with homosexuality, like I, I'm gay, and somewhere in there, it's all about gender determination, how your brain forms, the hormones that are going on at what parts of your body. And then, people are often born with ambiguous genitalia at birth, which we don't know whether they're male or female, because a micropenis looks a lot like a large clitoris. In fact, they're the exact same thing biologically. They grow from the same structure. So it used to be the fact that doctors would just choose your gender, surgically alter you without your consent, and then you would find out 30 years later that you've been told you were something that you weren't, and you never understood why you were an outcast in society and always told that you should be something that you aren't. So I feel like that's the mic drop in this issue. I don't understand why people don't talk about that more. I understand the social construct issues, the gender identity, gender is between your ears, sex is between your legs. I get that. But if we just talk about the biology, the facts, the science of what's going on, I think it's a clear-cut case that male and female is not nearly as rigid as we think it is. And all you have to do is look at other species to realize that. Hi, Jay. It's Aaron from Philly. I'm just calling in after listening to the voicemails on the most recent episode, and I'm afraid I have to put your last caller on blast a little bit. And um, well, I don't think you were off base. Um, I think you might have just been overthinking things a little bit with uh, with the subcategories. I mean, I think you were totally fine thinking of it that way. I don't I don't see it as being a problem, but I think uh, there's just some more fundamental misunderstandings uh, that Adriana had that I want to just um, kind of get into. So, for one thing, someone who says that they're a, a an advocate for LGBTQ rights and doesn't seem to know much about the T and Q, educate yourself. There's a lot of good people to read out there. If you're into books, you've got people like Janet Mock, you've got Julia Serrano, some of the um, authors have been around a, a lot longer on the trans feminine side, at least, you know, too. You've got uh, Jennifer Sidney Boylan, you've got Kate Bornstein, um, you know, not to mention many trans masculine writers as well, but uh, it seems that the issue here is mostly trans feminine, so I'll stick to that side. And then, of course, you've got the entire world of blogs. You've got people like Jill Weiss or Toby Hill Meyer at the Bellerico Project. You've got Monica Roberts at the Transgrio blog, who's you know, an African American trans woman. You know, so there's another perspective for you there. And the reason I mention all these things, and, and um, you know, I'm not speaking quite as prepared as I often do, but you know, this this hits a little close to home. Is this is the kind of thing we as trans women have been hearing for a very long time that you know somehow because we were assigned male at birth, we're missing this sort of essence of growing up female that somehow is universal to women in a way that nothing else ever is when you talk to a feminist about women's experiences. It's always about, you know, we're all different, we're all individuals, you can't put us in a box. Biology is not destiny unless you're a trans woman, in which case you were born with a penis and you're just going to have to accept that you'll never be a real woman. And it's kind of ridiculous. And, and so... You know, that's why I recommend reading about all these these women, you know, and, and of course there's other media figures too. You know, now Laverne Cox kind of blew up in the last year between uh, Orange is the New Black and appearing in Time Magazine and this and that. So, like I said, there's a lot of information out there if she wants to educate herself more about the lived experiences of trans women. And as far as thought experiments go, you're right. You know, as a little girl, 
Andrea, you were, I'm sorry, Adriana, uh, you were, you know, spoken to and given opportunities or not given opportunities or this and that based on how girls in your culture were raised, but I don't know, you know, you didn't choose to identify uh, an ethnic or racial category, but, you know, that's true whether you're a white girl or a black girl or a Hispanic girl or if you're a white girl from America as opposed to a white girl from Norway or, you know, a black girl in America versus a black girl in South Africa somewhere. I mean, these, these are there's no one universal female growing up experience. And the other side of it is that it doesn't give kids enough credit, even trans kids, enough credit. Yes, people wanted to treat me like a boy when I was growing up. And sure, I wasn't allowed to be in the Girl Scouts. I had to be in the Cub Scouts and things like that. But on the other hand, kids are social sponges. And kids who are trans know I think in a lot of cases, whether they have the language and whether it maybe takes them 40, 50, or 65 years to figure it out, that they know who they are. And so, you know, I didn't start learning how to be a woman the moment I decided to transition. I've been learning my entire life because all those social cues that were being thrown at girls through TV and way people and people who talk to me and the toys that people would or wouldn't let me play with. I was absorbing all the lessons that I wanted to learn about being a woman and being a girl. And whether I was allowed to always express those things or not, it's not like I didn't know they were out there. So uh, that's that's always a problem, I think, that gets overlooked with these sort of, you know, essentialist arguments. You know, and then, and then finally to the point that, yes, I, I agree, I was afforded certain privileges of, you know, people assuming that I was male or a boy or however you want to look at it but at the same time it's not much of a privilege being raised to be something that you know isn't you and and that's always this sort of failure of empathy that always gets me is you know yes i was raised with the expectation that i would fill a masculine role in society but when i knew that wasn't the role for me when i knew that wasn't right you know it's it's being forced into a box that that I knew didn't fit me. I mean, it's the same thing to say, you know, heck, I don't know. I'm, I, I, I'm terrible at basketball. I mean, I, I just don't have the physical coordination for most sports. I'm, I'm, you know, I tried playing baseball as a kid, and, you know, I was a perpetual right fielder because that's where they put the kid who has to be given some field time but isn't very good at the game. And, you know, it's it's... The kind of thing where it's like, okay, you know, if I grew up in a family and I was told, you know, from day one, you will be a baseball player, even though it's terrible and for me, and, and I know I'm no good at it, and I know it's just not the right fit, and, you know, what I'd rather be is an engineer or a, a lawyer or, you know, a coal miner or whatever it is, you know, it's not a great analogy, but it's the best I can come up with. I mean, I think it's something you can kind of emphasize with when, you know, if you're told that, Oh well, you're going to be this because you were born into this situation. You know that it's it doesn't matter if it's about gender, if it's about career, if it's about color, if it's about whatever. You know, it's it, I think it's all kind of the same thing, and I think it's something that somebody can find something in their life to empathize with. So that all said, um, you know, like I said, it, it's it's not really a privilege, even though it might seem like it to be raised in a gender role that you know doesn't fit you. Otherwise. You know, how to explain that I was engaging in self-harm and suicidality by the age of five. So there's all that. Uh, anyway, I know this went on for a little while, but, you know, it's, it's 
really, you know, there's a lot of good information out there. And if you're going to call yourself an advocate for the entire spectrum of LGBTQ people and not just the L's and G's, educate yourself, please. Go out and read all these people. The Internet is out there. The resources are out there. You know, trans people are in the media more than they've ever been. And it's not that difficult. And, um, you know, that's, that's just my rant for today. So uh, thanks a lot, Jay, and stay awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Just a quick announcement for you today. I was talking recently on the members-only bonus show about this new project I'm working on. It is nowhere near uh, ready to announce more publicly. Uh, It may never be ready to announce publicly. Who knows? But uh, the first step of this new project requires an ancient skill, uh, a skill that I I used to be fairly good at, hadn't really uh, been doing much of it recently, but, uh, you know, dusted off my old skills. And I started doing this thing. It's called reading. And so I was letting people know what yeah, maybe half a dozen books or so that I've read in the last few weeks, and then a couple dozen more books that I had on, on my to-read list as part of this project I'm working on. And so a listener wrote in and said, hey, maybe you could post your reading list on the website. Uh, you know, It could be useful for people. So I did that. Now, if you go to bestofleft.com, there's a reading list tab there. Uh, for now, I'm just posting the books that I have actually read and can actually give you a little review of. And if you go through and, and see what I've been reading recently, you know, you may get a, a sense of the direction I'm heading. There, uh, You may pick up on a theme. There, there may be an outlier here or there, but uh, there's a bit of a theme with the, the books I've chosen. So in the event that you find yourself uh, wondering what I've been reading, now you have a way of knowing. A quick reminder about the Climate Hike fundraiser. I am trying to wrap it up by the end of the month. It would be excellent if we could reach our goal by the end of the month, but let me put it to you this way. I'm glad there are 31 days in this month. We need every day we can get uh, to try to reach our goal. Uh, Again, I'm trying to raise $5,000 to give to nonprofit organizations fighting climate change. You are supposed to be inspired to donate because both my girlfriend and I are hiking dozens of miles through Glacier National Park over the course of several days. It's going to be a huge physical test for us. You know, I mean, think of it, it, it. It's like the people who jump into freezing cold water because that's uncomfortable or, you know, people who run a 5K, except we're hiking like a 50K or something like that. So if you're interested in donating, please head to bestoftheleft.com, click on the giant climate hike banner, and donate what you can. It's very much appreciated. I'll I'll be thanking more donors uh, in in the future. I I don't have the list in front of me at the moment. So that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com. 
facebook.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained